Hello and welcome to Manifesto, the podcast that asks the question, what would a fairer, more equal and more sustainable society look like and how could it be brought into being? This week, I spoke to Leslie Kern, the author of Feminist City, all about how gender inequality is literally built into the physical design of our cities and what we might need to do to overcome this. It's a really great chat. I really enjoyed it and I felt like I learned a lot. I think we covered a lot of ground. So yeah, I hope you hope you enjoy the chat too. We're back in lockdown. Feels a bit strange to be back where we were, I guess, roughly this time last year. But I hope everyone's hanging in there. I hope you're all doing okay. Um, and remember that we've got a vaccine now and there are more positive times ahead. Hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, here we go. Thanks for listening. Leslie Kern is on Manifesto episode three. This episode is kindly sponsored by Project CC. Are you obsessed with the creative world of fashion, but dismayed by its dreadful environmental footprint and humanitarian cost? Do you feel ready to switch to sustainable fashion, but are finding it hard to decipher what sound like interchangeable categories, such as fair trade, ethical fashion, and vegan clothing? Perhaps you've already tried to look for some sustainable clothing yourself, but gave up when you found a couple of online stores that were far too expensive or just didn't suit your style. Well, now your prayers have been answered. Project CC is Europe's largest ethical fashion search engine, handily collecting the products of over 200 ethical fashion brands all in one place. Their user-friendly searches offer you a tidy overview of the very best sustainable clothing and vegan fashion that's out there. So no more aimless Googling, nor going through dozens of open tabs to compare your findings. Each garment is clearly categorized depending on the labels that best describe it, like vegan, fair trade, eco-friendly, locally produced, or good cause. And that's not even the best part. You can directly look for all the products in one, two, or more of these categories in order to find clothes that match your values and what sustainability truly means to you. With Project CC, you're one step away from finding your new favorite sustainable brand. I'm off to find some sustainable socks. Leslie Kern is an Associate Professor of Geography and Environment and Director of Women's and Gender Studies at Mount Allison University, Canada. She is the author of Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World, which was published by Verso earlier this year. In Feminist City, Leslie shows how gender inequality is literally built into our cities. She says, the modern city has been set up to support the traditional gender roles of men, with men's experiences as the norm, with little regard for how the city throws up roadblocks for women and ignores their day-to-day experience of city life. Drawing on her own experiences as a mum, a friend and an activist, Leslie sets out a vision for a better, more inclusive and more just urban life, in which barriers, both physical and social, are dismantled and where all bodies are welcomed and accommodated. Hello, Leslie. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. So in Feminist City, um, really near the beginning, you write, women have always been seen as a problem for the modern city. Could you just say perhaps a bit more about what you mean by that? Sure. In that section, I'm thinking specifically about the kind of explosive growth of, I guess, the modern city in the time of the Industrial Revolution, which brought all sorts of different groups of people into the urban environment. Cities were becoming more crowded, noisier, more diverse. And this posed uh, a problem for both the kind of strict class barriers in many societies and also the strict gender barriers that tended to match up with those class barriers where women were suddenly, you know, literally rubbing shoulders with the wrong kind of people on the streets and were out in public in ways that were um, not 
sanctioned and that seemed to uh, perhaps put them at risk of having their purity, chastity and virtue questioned. So there was a need to both kind of control women to ensure that that they either didn't fall into a world of vice or that their vice laden ways didn't kind of um, infect other morally upstanding citizens. And it was also a need to kind of control the urban environment in ways that would uh, keep women quote unquote safe, but it wasn't as much about their safety as about protecting uh, the status of a particular set of women. Right, yeah. And fast forward to today, obviously, as you explain in the book, women's urban experience is still deeply gendered along similar lines. Do you still do you still see that kind of overarching desire to control women's women's bodies, women's movements in the city playing out today? I think it is, although it's taken on certain more subtle forms. So I think for many women today, we've almost internalized a sense of control in terms of the decisions that we make about what we wear when we go out in public, about who we speak to or make eye contact with, about how we move through the city, what mode of transportation we take, and about where we go in the city, and of course, when we do those things. So that is very much a product of a socialization, a gendered socialization that has taught us that we are supposed to be fearful in urban public spaces. And that kind of reminds us on a regular basis that we're, we don't really belong in these spaces. They're not really set up for us and we're not really meant to feel comfortable there. Right. Yeah. And when, when you say they're not really set up for women, what, what are maybe some of the starkest examples for you in your, in your experience where those that kind of disregard for women's experience in cities is kind of thrown into into light the most if that makes sense yeah absolutely in my own experience i first noticed the city itself acting as a uh, barrier to me when i was pregnant in london and then had my daughter there and all of a sudden the city that i had previously been easily able to navigate, of course, being able-bodied um, assisted me in, in being able to do that. But suddenly having a stroller, another person attached to my body, having uh, needs for accessibility, needs for spaces to sit and rest, to nurse a child, to change a baby, to feed a baby, these things were not easily accessible to me anymore. And I felt like just going about my daily routines, whether it's trying to go to work or do the shopping or to meet a friend were 10 times harder than they had previously been. And it was uh, shocking to me that the city was so clearly not interested in facilitating the movement of, of families and, and young children. Yeah, not, um, not kind of, interested in facilitating it once I think you say in feminist city you became more loud and noisy and more embodied as a, as a pregnant woman or as a woman who's just recently had a child as soon as your presence became kind of bigger the city you notice started to kind of like resist you and and more barriers start to crop up and one thing I was thinking about when you when I was reading the book is that that stands in really stark contrast to the, the figure of the city man really who is celebrated precisely for those things for being kind of the popular imagination precisely for being 
loud and noisy and a big presence. I'm thinking about, you know, kind of stockbrokers strutting around the streets of London or New York or wherever they are, the successful kind of like big personality city man. There's such a, a discrepancy there, isn't there? Yes. And if you go on the tube during rush hour, you'll notice the combination of both men spreading and then men holding up their large broadsheet newspapers because they're very important and they must read the newspaper <laughs> on the tube. Yeah. And they have no problem at all taking up that extra space. And, and it, that's sort of a, you know, an embodied example of it. But as you say, it's, it's beyond that. It's also symbolic in terms of the um, presumed right of men to always have access to city streets, to have their mobility needs met, to have the, uh, the assumption that the most important function of a city is to get people, men mostly from home to work in a kind of linear journey. And everything else that has to happen around that is secondary. And of course, much of that secondary work is still done by women. You speak in the book about the average urban citizen being a man. And I'm just wondering how, li how literal is, is that? Is, when we're talking about city planning, is the, the figure that is, oft is imagined is, is a man? And, and where do we see that come into play in, in urban experience when we're living in cities? Where, where is that obvious, I suppose? Mm. In, in many cases, it is quite literal because the, both the uh, experiences of men and their needs as the presumed breadwinner in a nuclear family have been used as the kind of standard for how we design, for example, our transportation systems, when they run, where they run from. It's also in a quite literal sense, the um, embodied figure of the man is the standard kind of design prototype from everything for, you know, how high the uh, grab bar on the tube is for right, when yeah. you're trying to hang yeah. on to, I, I found that in the city of Toronto where, where I grew up, the standard for like the um, amount of wind tunnel effect that buildings can create is based around what would be tolerable for a standard adult man. Wow, right. And to me, it's even kind of, um, I've been thinking about this, talking about this, this idea of this presumed normal urban citizen. And the more I talk about it, the more I, I realize, and I hope other people will recognize that, that this imagined citizen is actually a minority of urban right. citizens, <laughs> right? That, yeah. of course, not all men fall into this standard normative category, whether that's because they have their identity as uh, non-white or disabled or queer um, or because of their age or some other difference that marks them apart from this, you know, standard typical figure. And of course, when we think about all of the various other groups who tend to be cast as niche groups or special interest groups, if we take all of them together, we're actually the majority. Right, <laughs> and yeah. so kind of backwards that we've planned around uh, this, what I think is kind of a niche figure, this, you know, economic man who just takes these linear journeys to and from work with a quick stop at the pub. And, you know, that's all that he needs and desires uh, from a city. Right. Exactly. Which takes me on to something I was going to ask you about later, but we can kind of maybe go into that now. And that was to do with the idea of gender mainstreaming, which is obviously an approach that you talk about to city planning, which kind of um, 
means kind of ensuring that all planning decisions are considered with the goal of of gender inequality equality sorry gender equality as the departure point um in the examples you give of gender mainstreaming approaches being applied the focus has seemed to be in the past about making it perhaps easier for women to do that reproductive labor um which is obviously unpaid like childcare making it easier to drop off your children on your way to on your way to work um for example is that is of course potentially problematic because it risks just reinforcing social norms like women do the childcare and all that society has achieved is made it easier for them to do that rather than addressing the kind of underlying inequalities do you, how do we navigate that potential problem because i mean would you say that gender mainstreaming in city planning has a has a big part to play i would maybe think surely it does um how do you navigate um that potential problem and ensure that we don't fall into that trap with gender mainstreaming great question you're right if we only see gender mainstreaming as a way of slightly easing the already over a disproportionate burden that women face in terms of care work, then we may just be reproducing the same sorts of patterns. But if we think about gender mainstreaming as truly about gender equity, then we could also imagine that that involves a change in some ways in men's traditional roles that could see them increasing the kind of care work that they do. But I also think it's about creating systems, both social systems, safety nets, as well as changes to the physical environment that encourage care work to be made more collective, that it's not just about dividing it equally within a heterosexual household, but that it's about sharing it throughout society, understanding that it's essential and understanding that we all have a role to, to play in it. Yeah, so that, um, that might be, as you say, kind of like the, play, the place or the way that we start to unpick those underlying assumptions about gender that kind of perpetuate the continuing, continuing inequality. So part of the way to address that then is with practical, kind of like public, public policies, I guess, around redistributing childcare. Yes, absolutely. So I think there are definitely things that we can do in terms of the built environment around gender equality, and maybe we'll, you know, get to some more of those, but they yeah. can't happen alone. If there was just a physical or a spatial solution to problems of gender or other kinds of inequality, I'd like to think that we would have just done, done it. it. Yeah. yeah. And what, what are some of those changes to the physical environment, do you think? Um, yeah. Transportation is certainly key. It is often the case that people who do care work are not moving in sort of neat linear journeys through the city at rush hour times. They need different sorts of routes set up. They need physically accessible transportation and they need uh, to be able to travel at different times into different areas of the city. So that's one aspect. And in general, the idea that that people may have heard of, of the sort of 15 minute city where a variety of uses are relatively close together. So schools, workplaces, homes, hospitals, uh, sites of shopping and consumption are not uh, spread out in different zones throughout the city, but are brought closer within a sort of neighborhood or near neighborhood range. And that means that people who do uh, care work are able to access all of the different sites of services and, and work that they need to in a more efficient way. But of course, it does, as you say, have to be coupled with 
policy solutions with um, funding and resources to to make it happen. And childcare is is obviously one of the biggest um, areas that most most nations I think could could improve a lot on. And we've heard a lot of promises over the years about you know national childcare systems and so on, but they always kind of seem to like fall lower and lower down the agenda of whatever government originally promised them as, as other challenges crop up. And I think part of that is because this that labor does remain hidden in the single family home and we kind of don't need to address it until there's something like a crisis. And that's one of the things I think that people are really paying attention to with the COVID crisis is the way in which this um, double standard kind of around the work of childcare is really impacting women during this time. All of this, you know, relying on women's unpaid and underpaid labor, relying on the exploited labor of recent immigrants and people of color in what has come to be called, I think in your country, key workers yep. that previously were, you know, stigmatized jobs, jobs that were seen as having little value, low skill, exactly, low really skilled. important. And now it's like, oh, if we don't actually support that kind of work, first of all, many of us will die. And second of all, you can't have this thing called the economy. So recognizing that social services are not a drain on, their e on the economy, they're the very thing that lets it function. Of course. So yeah, for some so people, it seems like this is like a, a light bulb moment. And I'm glad that they're having it. I agree. I really hope that it is a tipping point. I think it's questioning the assumption that's just underpinned society, capitalist societies for so long. If we look after the economy, it will look after everything else. And really, through the coronavirus pandemic, what we're seeing is we need to if we if we want a healthy economy, we need to look after everything else first. It's kind of shown that the, the truth is actually the complete reverse to what we've been told for so long. And, and obviously what many people have said is actually the case for so long is that we need to, we need to look after people and all the services that they rely on first if we want the economy to stay healthy. Exactly. And we've been content to rely on um, women picking up this labor in the home and again on underpaid people, migrant workers, temporary workers, uh, people of color to do this labor for very low wages under very poor working conditions for so long. And when we come to this crisis point, we realize this has actually been a very shaky foundation. It's worked, seems to have worked quite well for some people, but now when we have this looming economic crisis, we're realizing that actually you can't support the whole system on that shaky foundation. So the question is whether this will lead to a longer term change or whether when things uh, stabilize in terms of the pandemic that whether we kind of return to that status quo. I'm just wondering how, how then, how then we maybe get to the point where those sorts of policy decisions, like you say, are, are taken seriously and are potentially coming in or being put into practice is is that partly about ensuring that we have more women in positions of power within you know kind of obviously big authorities as well I mean in feminist city you talk about pockets of resistance and how there are kind of alternative societies cropping up already around the world that are organizing things in different ways in your opinion or in your experience are you seeing are we moving in the right direction, I suppose, is what I'm asking. 
On some days, I feel optimistic that we might be. I do think that more women in positions of leadership is important. I mean, I think we've seen that it's not um, an absolute guarantee because, of course, you can have very uh, neoliberal policy agenda coming from women who are heads of state. But overall, the research does show that, especially at uh, like municipal level, so the level of city government, that when there are more women in office, there does tend to be greater attention paid to what are typically characterized as soft infrastructure, right? So not your roads and sewage systems, but your um, social services, your recreation, your youth programs, education, health, those kinds of things. So there does seem to be a gendered effect there. And that might be the result of people bringing their personal experience to the table when they uh, rise into positions of power and maybe raising things that um, an all male council might overlook because it doesn't impact their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't impact the lives of the loudest constituents <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis. So that is definitely um, an area for great improvement. I think in many places there is growing gender equity at uh, various levels of government and a greater um, sense that political parties need to advance uh, gender equitable slates in order to be kind of taken seriously. Yeah, and if we're thinking about equity as opposed to equality, could you just say a bit about that difference? I think it might be might be yeah, helpful for people. Mm, yes. So equity is more about the idea of kind of leveling a playing field and recognizing that not everybody starts from the same place on the playing field. And the question of something like women in politics, for example, has to take that into account that women and men who might be interested in politics are going to face a different set of barriers to actually entering or even considering the idea of putting their name forward to be nominated for a position. And some of those do have to do with responsibilities in the home and the um, knowledge that taking on a political role is a, you know, a major time commitment, it may require moving your family, and for political parties to aim to have a kind of gender equal representation, they actually have to do a lot at the ground level to ensure that it's actually possible for women to even put themselves forward for those roles. I wanted to jump back to, we've spoken quite a lot about the kind of barriers in the way for women trying to navigate the city and the disregard for women's experience that makes their lives difficult. I think we also, I'd just love to, to talk to you briefly about, I feel like it would be wrong not to, how those, that disregard doesn't just make women's life difficult, but will often make women's life dangerous as well. So how, how, does, the, how, how does the physical design of cities currently make life dangerous for women and force them to adjust their behavior? What are some examples of the ways that women living in cities might adjust their behavior um, to navigate the city more safely? And what are some planning changes that we could introduce um, to see cities made, sa made safer places for women to be? One of the issues is around zoning where we have areas of the city that are 
kind of empty out at certain times of day or particularly in the evenings. And this uh, does have to do with city planning and zoning because different parts of the city are permitted to have their businesses engage in different sorts of activities at different times of day. So it might end up being the case that somebody who is trying to navigate the city at night, whether for leisure and fun or for work or for care work, purposes find themselves in a part of the city where there are no people or very few people or there's very few businesses open or there's a lack of public transportation running at that time in that place. And these tend to be the areas that women especially express the greatest amounts of fear. People tend to feel much safer when there are a variety of people using a space at all times of day, even uh, throughout the night to some extent. So in terms of city planning, we could think about how can we create kind of multifunctional environments that transition through different sorts of uses throughout the day so that there's a, a kind of regular engagement with urban space. They don't become these dead zones at particular times. And part of that is as well, some of those really basic changes to the physical environment like improved lighting, better sight lines, removing sorts of sites of obstruction or places where people can hide, making sure that there's a kind of openness and, and sight lines that people can see the environment around them and others can see them as well. Ties in, it ties into to what we talked about right at the beginning, how cities became oppressive in the first place out of a kind of a false or, or kind of a, this, the lie being fed that, w that things were happening in order to keep women safe. I think it, we need to be careful, perhaps, that we don't repeat that. And I can see how that could happen with all the best intentions, putting the focus on ensuring that women are safe and are doing what they need to do in order to keep themselves safe, rather than addressing what it is that's putting them in danger in the first place and the fact that they're not putting themselves in danger. And, you know, this is an idea that gets peddled out all the time if you're thinking about, like, sexual, sexual assault cases. The focus seems to be on what did the woman, did, did the woman contribute to the situation in any way? Which is, to me, it's just framing everything in completely the wrong way. And I wonder if that kind of would map onto a little bit the, the way that keeping women safe in cities has been thought about. Yes, I mean, there's no end to the ways in which we are quite eager to blame women for any issue that befalls them from mm -hmm. everything from sexual assault to the, you know, overwhelming burden of childcare, mother blame, um, the, the notion of the welfare queen, all of these sorts of yeah. stereotypes and things are trotted out on a regular basis to kind of control women and again, keep us in our place. In a broader sense, one of the, again, to kind of come back to this idea around defunding the police, some of the conversation about, well, what about women's safety? What about rape and sexual assault? What about, um, you know, making the streets safe for women? You know, if you defund the police, are, are we going to see some kind of increase in violence against women? And I think often women's ideas about women's safety have been used to justify over-policing, CCTV, surveillance, private security, gated communities, all of these kinds of things. But I would argue that I don't think there's much evidence that expanded policing 
has done much to decrease violence against women in any realm, especially the realm where women face the most violence, which is the home. And I think there's probably almost zero evidence that um, policing interventions with respect to domestic violence have made any dent into that problem. Whereas things like affordable housing, childcare, um, a universal basic income, uh, free accessible public transportation, these things would go a much longer way, I think, towards creating a situation where women are not in peril from domestic violence, yet we are much happier to throw money at police services than we are to, you know, fund a robust national childcare system. Yeah, society's priorities are all wrong. Are they the things you just mentioned, like universal basic income and free childcare and stuff, are they some of the things um, that you think would contribute to bringing a feminist city into being? Are, do, are we are you, are you also thinking about um, more physical changes as well in terms of space in the city? I'm just trying to understand, mm. I guess, the, the two sides of it. So on the one hand, there are policy changes that need to happen in order to make the city or to make women's um, lives in the city easier and to make the city more accessible to women and to, to get on with their lives outside of the sphere of, you know, unpaid work and childcare and stuff like that. Walking around the city, though, are there, as we look at it as a space, are there things that need to change too? Yeah, great question. So I think that absolutely those kinds of policy changes can be um, mapped onto changes in the built environment. So we could think again about um, transportation systems and networks and recognize that women are tend to be a majority of public transit users have less access to a private vehicle and are more likely to take multiple trips and to have those trips extend into uh, places that are poorly serviced by public transportation. So if care work was kind of at the forefront of thinking about how we arranged our transportation and mobility networks in cities, I think we would um, that would be a move towards a, a feminist vision of the city. We could also think about physical accessibility of public spaces, which improves the lives of disabled people, elderly people, people pushing strollers, even anyone who's just pulling a grocery cart along with them to you know, get their daily shopping home, benefits from accessible transit and, and urban design, things like, um, to go really back to basics, public toilet access in cities. Yeah. Most cities have, you know, completely given up on the idea of providing yeah. clean and safe facilities. But for many people, the lack of knowing where they can use a safe washroom, one that matches their gender identity, one where they can look after a baby limits their movements throughout space. So sometimes we can really go back to the very basics, to our universal sort of human embodied needs and say, where in cities could we improve access to these things? And that is you know, part of what I would see as a broader move towards a feminist transformation of the city. It was so great to chat to Leslie. I feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to sit down with her for almost an hour, really, and chat about her book in so much depth. I feel like I learned so much from her. So thanks so much, Leslie, for coming on. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, 
please share the podcast, like, subscribe, share, review, whatever it is you can do. In a couple of weeks' time, in the next episode, I'm going to be chatting to Jeff and Deborah from Breadshare, which is a really cool community bakery and social enterprise. Uh, we talk quite a lot about the idea of a social enterprise as an alternative business model that's better for people and the planet. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for listening. And yeah, hang in there. We won't be in lockdown forever. <laughs>